Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. You're listening to a special bonus episode of the C Word, featuring the audio from the diversity panel, which is part of ICON's annual meeting in November 2018. Please bear in mind that this is a live recording using a multitude of microphones in a slightly unpredictable environment, so the audio is a little bit dodgy from time to time. Without further ado, let's get to it. Well, you know me, Chloe and Christina already, but let's listen to Alison Richmond introducing our co-hosts on the panel. And I would now like to introduce Rebecca Plum. Rebecca is an emerging professional, uh, currently not employed in cultivation, very sadly. Um, she is on a gap at the moment, but she has experience in conservation working at the National Trust and Oxfordshire County Council. Neris Rudder, last but not least, Neris is a, bar- is a British Barbadian Collections Manager and Conservator working currently at Autograph. Autograph is a photographic arts charity and that focuses on social justice, diversity, and human rights. So, without more ado, I am going to hand over to the panel. Oh, thanks very much, Alison. That's awesome. So welcome everyone to our really special edition of the Seaward the Conservatives <laughs> podcast. We've never been live before, so hi guys. Hi. Normally we sit in a little room where uh, nobody sees us, so this is terrifying. But it's going to be fine, and we're really pleased to be here. I thought we might begin by starting to talk about what uh, diversity is. Um, so for example, I remember that I did a little illustration for our first ever episode on demographics. Mm-hmm which uh, was the UK Conservatives as 100 people. Um, And it was based on data from 2012 to 2013. And obviously that's not an accurate snapshot of of who we are today because we have changed a little. But back in those days, uh, it was 65 women and 35 men if we boiled down the profession in the UK to 100 people. 97 were white and two were disabled. So that's the kind of playing field we have when we start talking about diversity in our profession. We could really do with um, stirring up the pot a little bit, I think. Um, And today we're here to talk about what we might be able to do and what the playing field looks like today. Who'd like to go next? Christine has some statistics. Have you got some up to well, actually, <laughs> Oh, did I just ruin all of your statistics? No. <laughs> I normally get nominated as the kind of stato for all of the podcasts because I've got an it's endless true. appetite for statistics. Um, I suppose I, I... So on the train down here, I was trying to find as many demographic statistics about the conservation profession as I could, and as well as the report that Jenny cites, which was actually the... Um, Conservation Labour Market Intelligence Report that was commissioned by ICON and presented at the 2013 Triennial Conference. Um, And just as an aside, um, at the presentation, Kenneth, the author of the report, said that the average conservator was a woman, white woman in her 40s with a graduate uh, with at least one degree. Everybody promptly looked around the room, which was full of middle-aged white women, and <laughs> kind of thought, yep, this is fairly uh, true. Um, that has changed a bit. Um, until 
the mid-80s, conservation was actually had more men than women in it. So it's not always been the female-dominated profession that we think it is today. Um, and it's also changed quite a lot from being a profession where only 24% were graduates in 1973 to one in which, um, sorry, I'm just leafing through my notes here, um, one in which 78% had at least an undergraduate degree in 2013. So again, we're, we're um, becoming more female, we're becoming higher educated, um, the needle's not really moved at all in terms of um, diversity of ethnicity and so on, but um, it, it hasn't always been the way it is, and there's no reason why it should inevitably always be the way it is either, um, I, I think was the gist of, mm -hmm. of that, really. Great. Anyone else want to? <laughs> um, well, so I didn't really prepare very much for this. Um, I've done the same work on camp with, with the guys before, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, felt a little bit better because it was going to be edited, so this live is a little bit scary, so excuse me. So we are imagining you all slightly drunk, <laughs> um, but uh, finding out that Christina is, um, has mixed heritage as well, so we're going we're gonna to share here. Yep. Um, so I was a bit surprised because I thought I was going to be the only BAME, Black uh, Asian Minority Ethnic Person here. And I, and I do believe that I am the only BAME disabled conservator here or within our confines. Um, I'm slightly different because I am Barbadian uh, and British and I'm dual national. So I come from, uh, a, and I also come from a class system of where I know that I belong in certain spaces. And this is what is going to come, this is basically the crux of what I want to tell you guys. Um, there's been 200 years of indoctrination of you guys and us guys being told that only certain people belong in certain spaces. So what you are endeavoring to do now Thank you for jumping on the panel. It is very important. Is looking to break down 200 years of indoctrination, and the most important thing is to create spaces where people feel like they belong, that they can walk into a space and say, "I can become a museum professional. I can become a conservator. I can do these things." Right now. They can't because you have no presence. We as conservators have no presence in the communities that you are trying to reach. And, the, uh, and it's very, very sad, especially here in London, which is one of the most diverse capitals in the world. So I'm actually pretty shocked at this myself because it's much less than I thought it was going to be. But excuse me, what is the Asian? <coughs> Uh, sorry, I'll come down to the um, statistician. Uh, so in 2013, 1% of conservators identified as Asian or British Asian of some sort. So, Not in conservation. Um, I mean, on, on that subject, 13% of the UK population is from um, a background that is not white British. 
so from various other minorities. And um, so 13% for the UK workforce as a whole, 7% in the museum sector, and only 3% in conservation. So not only is the museum sector less diverse ethnically than the UK workforce as a whole, but conservation is even less so than museums, I think. So um, just to, to butt in, I mean, something that, and not to put the pressure on the people who actually, uh, I suppose, do tick these diversity boxes, but maybe there's a certain responsibility on us to actually um, come out and say, we are disabled, we are part of the LGBT community, um, I am both of those things, and I'm not always advocating it, but it doesn't mean that we don't exist. So maybe some, for example, people like me, to say, you are welcome, you already exist in the profession, mm -hmm. and this is not as scary an environment as it might seem. Um, obviously, that's a very different thing with things like, um, uh, things like eth ethnicity, but um, maybe some voices just need to be louder and say that we already exist here, and you, this is a safe environment to work in, because mm -hmm. it is. I think one of the difficult things is the relatively small size of the mm -hmm. profession, so um, it's hard to make 
those networks, it can be hard to find other people like you if you're the only no, of course. Um, person ticking a particular box, if you like, in, in your region, or possibly the only conservator in your museum. I mean, conservation is, is a profession where it's hard to make those networks anyway, so um, I wonder if we should be trying to yeah. make those more visible as yeah, well. So I think so. Do. I, I would like to highlight that there's a really nice movement in the museum sector in general, of which we are very much a part. Uh, for example, there's Museum as Muck, which is a working class group that has started <laughs> on Facebook, which I really recommend that you check out. Uh, there's also Museum Pride, which uh, was very active this year. Uh, for the LGBT community within working within museums, so there are some really good movements out there. There's museum detox. Yes, as well, as well which yeah. is yeah. really, really, really good. Yeah. Uh, and those are all vital to, you know, it's vital that we as, as conservatives join in those movements as well, because it might be that the pool is small here, but there is a slightly bigger pool in the museum sector, and mm-hmm. we can work on expanding it. And I think I find it strange that in conservation it is so diverse, and yet we don't have that within the group of people that do the work. Um, In my MA course, I was lucky enough to work alongside a whole variety of people from different cultures, different countries. And I found that thinking about how I treat objects kind of reflects in who I interact with, the conversations I was having, because they trained in different countries, because they bring different skill sets. It really, really enriched my experience. And I was all the more kind of grateful for it. So I'm shocked. I didn't know those statistics. I'm actually shocked to hear that it's not reflected in practice. And I think we should do all we can to try and change that. I really do. And I think it's got to have longevity. It's not something that can be tick the box. We've got diversity. It's not like that. Like you're saying, it's very personal. It needs to be taken seriously. Um, So I can only sort of shout about how important that is, really. And I'm glad that we talking about it, because I think it strikes chords with people. Do you have some more intriguing statistics to share with us? Um. No no pressure, it's fine. Um, I I came across an interesting one, which was that managers are less likely to have higher degrees than uh, conservators as a whole, Um, but I suspect that's a function of age and the fact that managers will by and large be older and have entered the profession at a time when higher degrees weren't necessary. One thing I did find is that um, in the the Labour Market Intelligence Report, it said that the the age group that had the highest rate of of, uh, undergraduate or graduate degree training was actually people in their 30s. And it was lower for people who were older, who possibly entered the profession through other routes. But it was also lower for people who are younger. And I suspect that's because that's where we're starting to see ICON's efforts with alternative routes of entry to the profession kicking in. So that actually, um, the people who were in their 30s in 2013, that's possibly the kind of high watermark of expecting conservators to be largely a graduate or a postgraduate profession. And we are starting to see more people coming into the profession through other routes like apprenticeships mm-hmm. and um, on the job training and that kind of thing. I do wonder whether what we're going to see further down the road is a sort of glass ceiling there mm-hmm. where those people are going to find that actually you can progress it's all very well entering the profession, but you've also got to ensure that your career is sustainable in the longer term. 
And so I, I suppose that's a secondary point, is that it's not just about getting people to enter the profession in the first place or to go onto the training courses, but they need, these people need to be able to find jobs. They need to find jobs that enable them to have a sustainable career, to support themselves on a reasonable salary, possibly to support a family, and to continue to find work for many years to come. And that's not always possible. And I think at the moment there are some, what you might call structural inequalities that make it more difficult for some people than for others to do that. And so I think that's possibly what we ought to be looking at. Yeah, we were having a, having a conversation with a group of people my age, I'm 24, and we all entered conservation uh, not really knowing the outcome of what we, career we've decided to go into. And I think possibly there needs to be more honesty about prospects because it is scary, I won't lie, it is scary looking at how the job market lies now. Um, contracts are short term, you end up travelling a lot. If you don't have the support of your family, it's very, very difficult to even do things like get experience through volunteering because real life kicks in, you have to pay your rent. Um, and I think if we could find a way of alleviating some of that pressure, some of that kind of <laughs> just the sheer sort of scary nature of it, I think it would be a lot less negative when you do look at the reality of what you're trying to enter. Because I think in reality you do need the experience, the real world experience. And we're very passionate about trying to get that, but it's not always possible in our shoes because we have to put earning money first because we can't just go off and do these things. We know about the internship opportunities, but they're highly competitive. And I know that you do fantastic work through those programmes, but I think there's room for more scope with whether a separate, I don't know, separate funding can be gathered for people who are trying to enter you don't have support networks already in place through family, they're very much on their own. I think that's a good way of opening it up. And I don't I know if anyone agrees. But I, I was going to say, yeah. just for employers as well, just things like um, being willing to offer travel expenses to people who come to job interviews and factoring that in when you're considering the cost of recruitment. It's a relatively small cost added to the cost of employing somebody, but for somebody who's looking for a job and doesn't currently have a job and has no income, that can make the difference between being able to go to the job interview and not being able to go to it. And as an employer, obviously it's in your interests to make sure that you are able to attract the widest pool of candidates possible. And that is a reality. I know people who haven't gone to job interviews because they just can't afford to spend the night away because it's a lot of money. It's over £100 usually. Um, and sometimes companies don't offer that reimbursement, so you really have to think about that. And it shouldn't be like that because if they've offered you an interview, they obviously want to meet you. It shouldn't be a monetary barrier, but there is, and some companies are great, they reimburse the whole thing, but it's an area which does have an effect. People do lose out because they're not able to afford these things. I wondered if anyone, does anyone have any questions in the room now? I'm interested particularly in an opinion of... Um, conservation compared to other professions that are largely um, if, if I may, yeah. I don't have statistics like, like Christina does, but I remember when I was also in Cardiff that um, conservation was the second to last well uh, paid job expecting the highest um, uh, qualifications with journalism being the only one that was below us. So we were at the very bottom with just journalists below us. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, we, we were speaking about this. Um, 
uh, earlier as well, the, the um, ICON uh, minimum uh, yes. wage, excuse me, salary scale, which you know the Americans are now saying, oh my goodness, how, what great work ICON has done. And I'm like, yeah, great, but it hasn't changed since I was at school. Um, and so, you know, this is not, uh, it may be a living wage, but it's certainly not a living wage with a couple of kids and having other responsibilities as well. Um, when I look at my baby cousin, who's a lawyer, who's making twice as much as I am, um, when I'm looking at, uh, you know, teachers who are making, who are making more than I am, and I've been doing what I've been doing for the past 15, 20 years. Um, a uh, deputy head at a school in London making about 43,000 pounds a year. And compare that to what a, not, a, that's a deputy, sorry, that's a deputy of a, of a department, sorry, not a deputy head of a school, but a deputy head of a department is making 43,000 pounds a year. I think that's but, what. But this is about salary levels. About diversification. But the but the salary levels directly impacts diversity. You're not going to get a diverse population coming Absolutely. into a, a into a profession where you cannot support your family, especially when you're talking about first and second generation um, uh, immigrants. I, I don't like using those words, but um, basically you're talking about people who know that they are the backbone, they are the financial backbone of not just their nuclear family, but extended families. And they cannot look at a job that's offering 25 grand compared to a job that's offering 30 or 40 grand and choose conservation. So pay directly impacts who you get in through the door. So, so the, so, um, you know, the work that ICON has done is, is fantastic, but we've got to have more of these conversations. We have to have more pushing back, saying, you know, you, you are expecting more and more from us. We need to be remunerated for it. I also um, know that many people retrain and they enter conservation later in life. Um, I know because I study with some people who had children, they had families, and they've gone back to their old jobs because it was impossible to support themselves. So what you say is it's true. And I always think, weirdly, conservation is kind of a young profession, but it's not because short-term contracts and low salaries are suited to single people who can move around easily. And that doesn't translate to having kids. <laughs> Uh, can I <laughs> chip in here as the sort of token person with kids on the panel? And also, um, we, we, with the C word, we recently did an episode about parenthood and about combining parenthood with a career in conservation. And obviously, for most professions, that wouldn't be a particularly exceptional thing to talk about. But we felt it was an interesting topic to talk about because we felt that actually there are real barriers to combining a career in conservation with having children. And I think I, particularly as a mid-career conservator, am actually finding that I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to sustain my career now more in a way that I didn't before, because I can no longer move around the country at the drop of a hat. Um, I have to consider whether it's worth taking a six-month contract somewhere else. I have to be able to plan for childcare. I need to know which, you know, wh where I'm going to be working um, in, a, in a while. And I think 
these are all things that make it difficult for women in particular to sustain careers not not I mean maybe you know I think most people feel happy when they've got through that first 10 years and sort of feel okay I've made it but actually there's there's no guarantee of that either yeah Yeah, there's it it can still continue to be difficult just because you've got children one of the things we found sort of talking about it is that we felt we knew relatively few conservators with children um, and we, I mean, we, we sort of did a bit of a straw poll, I certainly did, in, in my organisation where there were over 20 conservators in the sort of federation of museums that I work with. And um, I think it was less than 25% um, are parents, and I don't know if, um, which is hugely lower than the proportion in the population as a whole. And I don't know whether it's that people with children are leaving the profession, as you suggest, because they're just finding it's not sustainable, or whether conservation naturally attracts people who don't want children, or whether they find they're all kind of paired out and can't really deal with caring for small people as well after a day spent caring for objects, I'm not sure. But um, for whatever reason, that's also something I just wanted to throw in there, is that it can be about more kind of insidious things as well. Shall we reference the, uh, well, we, does anyone else any, have any questions or comments from the room? And then we can reference the, um, the Twitter that you're all watching. I can see you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you want to take Christina's? Because we can share. Does anyone have a question or comment? So you're saying That's a really, really, really big question. Like um, does it not work? I can tell you that there are a number of organizations that care within London that if you're talking about diversity and increasing your diversity, let's use sure this one. Any, uh, any institution that is even questioning this should be speaking to the George Padmore Institute. They should be the George Padmore Institute. They should be talking to UCL. They should be talking to uh, SOAS. Um, they should, I mean, even the Black Cultural Archives, autograph. Uh, so, uh, I mean, there are a number of different institutions that have done decades of work on representation and identity and have community, have uh, a user, have a community um, respect that you should be speaking with. You're not reinventing the wheel. Um, there's a, a bit of a problem. Sorry, you're saying the institutions or we as conservatives? You as conservatives as well. Because you guys have to um, go and speak to your bosses and speak to your heads of departments. And you know, this is not a passing it to someone else to deal with. It's everybody in this room should be doing something to try and make it a little bit more open and a little bit more accessible for those that find it hard. Because everyone in this room, including me, has incredible privilege to do what we do. Incredible privilege. But we get caught up in our own little dramas and don't see how much harder it is for somebody with children or somebody who um, up north who can't afford to, to, to the, the journey down for, for an interview, how hard they they find it to get into this position. So yeah, it's every single one of us. 
Um, could uh, Neris, could you pass the only working mic? Oh no, we've got that one there. Oh, that's true, but we probably need that one for people. Okay, yeah. trouble. <laughs> we have a roving mic now. Yeah. Oh, cool. Check us out. Should we have that one back then, and then we'll have it? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that. Um, but on the right side, I won't give everyone up. Um, right, so I thought we would have a quick chat about the kind of questions that we've had on Facebook and Twitter already, ones that are coming in. Um, I know that beforehand we did ask people to send us questions and we've got a couple in the feed already. Mm -hmm. um, Jane wrote in and said, do you think requiring workplace, uh, workplace experience before or during studying uh, is positive, negative or diversity neutral? From my experience, um, we had to do a mandatory placement. Oh, we're going to leave that one. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yep. Um, my experience of placements was a largely positive one because it led to an internship. So I would say yes, do it if you can, but I realised that uh, I was having a conversation with two museum professionals on Monday and they say, we would love to offer placements to students. Um, universities write to us with their specific needs for a placement, but because of how much it's changed, because of the nature of the work that is being done now, it's not solely bench work. It's more sort of collections management in the widest possible sense. So you're dealing with things other than bench work. You, know, you need to know how to budget. You need to know how to project manage, work with volunteers. It's all part of conservation now. Um, and I would say I think they were frustrated that they couldn't do more because they're constricted by what they have to do in their day job. They can't be more accommodating, but they'd love to. Um, I know the course I studied on at the University of Lincoln placements were mandatory when I did it, but they have changed that now, I believe, so it's optional. Um, people can either do a placement or they can stay in the lab and do bench-based work. Uh, part of that worries me because I think, from my perspective, I gained a lot of experience in the real world and I know I speak from a position where the internship was paid and I could live at home. Not everyone can do that, so it's... It's finding ways to make these opportunities more accessible um, because otherwise you end up with people who, who can do it because the family is able to support them or they've already got savings. This, this is a very genuine problem because obviously internships and placements and work experience, they are wonderful things and they are really crucial in your development as an emerging professional. But I mean, even doing a couple of months uh, in between semesters at university it was backbreaking, right? And we actually got a small stipend towards it. Mm -hmm. And you know, it still obliterated my savings. So what do we that's not an option for a lot of people. And that I think that means that any of these kind of unpaid or unsupported internships are actually really bad for diversity. Good for the people, bad for diversity. So I think that's something that we might just need to work on as a sector yeah. and really look at. I think there's an expectation that you do get real world experience and you do expect to have to do it voluntary and it's it's annoying because yes it's it's fine to do it voluntary but only for a short period of time it's not sustainable so i think that if anyone said should you do a placement i'd say yes definitely but it's not a question of you definitely should do it it's can you do it mm -hmm. then that's how we need to look at it and how we can make that easier 
Um, I don't know what anyone else thinks. I don't know how it's changed since you guys studied. Was it mandatory? Was it optional? Was it even a thing? I don't know. Mandatory. Yeah. yeah. Does anyone have any comments to that um, in the room? Oh, yes, please. Um, I'd just like to make a comment um, about a course that I'm involved with at Arms Lane, and it's the Enfield course, two-year course in Glasgow, Central Textile Conservation. There's a cohort of eight each year. This year's intake started in September. Eight students, postgraduate, seven not from the UK, <laughs> one, as it happens, from India. I can't talk through all the others. In the second year, a cohort of eight, I think one, maybe two from the UK, <laughs> one male in Singapore. There is diversity. The other thing too is that there are really generous bursaries uh, that go with that particular course. I know this is just one course out of those in the UK, and I'm not promoting it, I'm just adding a, 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 an insight that I have. There are placements, um, each student has one, and, so, and I would not be judging that um, individual affluence is necessarily a factor. Mm -hmm. So that's just one course, but... Oh, that's um, very good to hear, thank you. So, um, I just want to make a comment about that. Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, but I would have to say that it's going to be tempered by whether the, the students are in, um, international or national. Mm -hmm. Because one of the issues um, that, that I've faced, I have faced before is um, universities are actively seeking international students because they make them pay so much more. Yeah, um, that's true. When during my time, a, a local student was paying nine thousand pound versus sixteen thousand pound for international um, per year. Um, it was a science degree, but sixteen thousand pounds is ridiculous. Again, I would have to, I will have to um, own my privilege. The only reason that I could study conservation is because I had scholarships. That is the only way I could do it. Um, and so there, there is that. Um, it, it has to be looked at at the light of how much money is being brought in by these students. Um, uh, uh, one of our local students. Um, said that if, um, sorry, I'm going to say local, I mean one of our British students in, in our very small um, classes, we spoke about the fact that most people couldn't, even British people couldn't afford the seven to eight thousand pounds. And that's why you have so many international students versus British students in, in classes now. So, um, and uh, Emily has just tweeted at us, we need to be engaging with students younger than undergraduate and A-level to increase diversity. Mm -hmm. I actually posted that we were doing this debate today on the Museum as Muck group, um, which is a close group that you can join. Um, and that was their resounding response mm -hmm. as well, how to, do, how to increase the diversity in the sector. You need to talk to people when they're young, they have no idea, they came and aspire to yeah. be one of us. Mm -hmm. Now that's the thing, we need to go into schools, we need to talk to people, we need to be visible, we need to tell them that you, you too can don your purple nitron gloves one day and touch things, and that's fine, you need to get out there and talk to them, because you, know, you need to sow the seeds that this is a dream, you know, this, is a, this is the coolest job ever, because it is, 
Um, but you need to get out there and talk mm. to them, and that's a good start. Doing one first degree is much more sort of plausible for, for people than doing a master's and then another or you know working for a, a period of time because there were a number of people in our course but <laughs> I say a number I think maybe that number was just one person on the, the course that, that we studied in Cardiff that had to work at the weekend and they they were working not just at the weekend but also evenings and whenever they could basically to support themselves um, and that person was living at home as well so it's it's it can be done as a postgrad. Um, I but would like to chime in though, that's only an option if you're very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something that I would love to cover Absolutely. is disability and I would like to cover mental health even if it's just mm -hmm. in these words. Um, so it might not be feasible mm -hmm. to work every of the week on top of a full-time full mm -hmm. uh, conservation degree and, and your weekends. I mean, that, that takes stamina from a person who is 100% well. Uh, we cannot demand that of, you know, a disabled student, uh, for example. And the fact that that's what it takes is, is a, a very difficult one that I think we should look at. Um, someone did actually ask us. Oh, yes. Sorry. No, go on. Hello, sorry. Hi. Um, but I know that there's definitely moved in museums towards not allowing unpaid Yes. Work, mm -hmm. So that you're only allowed people that have something or it's part of their course to do this work. But I think there's also been um, less and less paid work available for students to do during the holidays as well. Like mm -hmm. when I first started working in England in the early 2000s, I think for charities we've had students every summer in to do work and that just isn't there anymore. So, that was how people made their way through the courses to do both over the summer and money doing work. It was like experience and work at the same time, but that seems to be lacking to a great extent within the profession. Which is to do with conservation budgets and all that sort of mm -hmm. thing as well, but you know, at least if, when you're training that you can get experience and make some money at the same time in those long holidays. Yes, absolutely agree. And I think the competitive nature of the profession is something that we all talk about, um, and we all say, "Oh, isn't that a problem?" But it it becomes very obvious if you're. I mean, particularly if we're talking about conservators that come into the profession through um, apprenticeships, it'd be really interesting to see the number of conservation employers that do consider people without degrees. Um, in their um, recruitment process, are they just sifted out at the start, or do they get the opportunity to um, interview as well? Um, so I think that's. If anyone has any comments on that, that would be really interesting at this point. And otherwise, I think we do have a comment at the back. Oh. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it does. I really agree with what you're saying about apprenticeships because if you're talking about people who are going to university students, etc., there's a kind of fund, uh, a placement, or whatever. It, if you start as an apprentice, you're going to be a level head anyway. Mm -hmm. I'm in a position where I'm employing people, one of my biggest problems is finding young people who actually have the skills or experience. People coming out straight out of the university are a minefield. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, really you're looking for either someone who's extremely exceptional, somebody who's been on a great place, etc. 
So if you can do that through some sort of apprenticeship right from the beginning, I, I don't personally really see what the point in having a degree is, but you can't actually in the university do it. Mm -hmm. I think um, I noticed, I went to an interview which was for an apprenticeship, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm overqualified for this, I've got an MA, but when I went to the interview, it was a group interview, um, the people being interviewed were mid-career, um, five of us had, I think, degrees, and I was actually really surprised to not see any school leavers at all in that room, and that just really kind of threw it back to me that jobs are hard to find and people will go for things which are below their qualification level just because they have to. So that's another thing that needs addressing it. How do we make sure that apprentices, apprenticeships are sort of for school leavers? Also, I know it, it's great that people from all careers are applying to do apprenticeships because that's diversity, but apprenticeships are designed for school leavers and it should be the route away from academia if you don't want to go to university. So it's like this imbalance, it's almost like knocking heads with two ideas, but that's just one experience I've had of it. I, I think, <laughs> I think at the moment with the university fees rising so much, it's a very plausible route to take. So is it actually being targeted at people in schools? I don't know whether people in school know about this, well, specifically I, I with conservation. Because I know that when I was at school, I didn't know what conservation was. I thought it was wildlife, pandas, all that sort of thing. <laughs> so um, it came to me as a surprise, yeah. But I don't, I don't think they know. And I think if they did know, they'd be very excited about it. So. But doesn't this then go back to what Jenny was saying about the fact that we as a profession need to be more present in schools mm -hmm. so that people are made aware of, of the profession and of this particular route? Um, well, sort of going back to that, I think if we're present in schools, we do, if we're considering the people who are in the profession and the financial status, if we consider that everybody who's going into this is going to take on debt, so what is it like £4,000 now, surely we should be specifically promoting these apprenticeships rather than the course and potentially going to pay back the wage, which is, as I said, so low. Interesting. I think. Um then there's like a general trend towards opening up apprenticeships more now. I don't know when it started, but there's definitely an impetus to do it. So I think there needs to be a levelling out. You can go to university if you want to, but you can also take this route. I, don't, I think many people feel that they have to go to university because it's so specialised. They feel like they need that background. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of getting there another way, like genuinely getting there another way. You've got... Um, I think there's a diagram icon has of where, how people pursue a career in conservation. So the pathway. The pathway, thank you. <laughs> so one route is traditional university, the other is apprenticeships. But I question how accessible the apprenticeship route is at the minute. Well, I, I think it obviously needs to get government funding and recognition. But for instance, talking about government, I was in Foreign Office recently, they have posters on wall um, saying, this is so and so, she works for us, she came through an apprenticeship. You know, they're, they're promoting it themselves for their own, so really this is something that really is very that was a question I was going to ask as well. Oh, and we have another question. Thank you. Um, if anyone, I, I feel like I'm out of the loop with how um, young adults are led towards apprenticeships. Um, are apprenticeships encouraged in schools? And if they are, can conservation sort of essentially get in on that? If there, if there being, um, if there are kind of career days, is it is that something that conservation could be involved with? Um, 
because as we say, the, the, a lot of the discussion from um, particularly um, working class backgrounds and people with low income backgrounds is that it has to start early because otherwise you've, you've kind of set yourself on a different trajectory um, before you have the chance to then change careers, which is costly. Um, I'm seeing pointing from in different directions. So we, have we got who has a question? If you could raise your hand so I know. Oh, there's one over there. There's one over there. Did you have a question as well? <laughs> um, I'm encouraging questions simply. <laughs> so there's three. Yeah, um, moving on from internships and low pay and conservation, I think that's <laughs> an ongoing debate. For the first, for the first question, what um, is it essentially? You mean what museums can be doing in communities to be present? Because I think the the. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it depends. Sorry. I couldn't hear you. <laughs> I think it depends on the institution and it might be that museums, more museums can do more with communities. I'm, uh, I'm associated with the People's History Museum, which we, we don't tend to say our employer as the C word, what but whoops. Um, and they do an, a lot with um, communi community curating on different subjects with different groups of people. Um, and I think in that kind of context where the, the working with communities and being present as, in, and as, an, as an institution, as, an, as a positive institution for communication is set into the program of the museum. That's, I, I feel that's a very, very positive way of challenging um, diversity in the heritage, heritage sector in general, as well as being a voice for different groups of people that don't have a voice um, generally. Um, what was your second, the second part of your question, sorry? <coughs> yes, I remember, sorry. What, what does the l lack of diversity um, change do to, does anyone have any comments? I feel like, I want to say um, the phrase, nothing about us without us, um, and that basically is a, a, a famous phrase that sums up, if you've not got people representing themselves, then, an institution or a community or a profession won't study or won't um, do any work about that. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Neris as I imagine you have something to say, but does anyone have anything to say in response to that? I, th I think just generally that um, it's going to, if, if, if we're quite homogenous as a profession, then that's going to, we're, we're at risk of groupthink, of always approaching conservation mm -hmm. problems in the same way. As conservators, we're all very aware of the kind of values that we bring to our work and also our understanding of the context and significance of the objects that we work with. And I think that 
those understandings would be quite different if we came from different backgrounds. And I think it would be good to get quite different perspectives in some cases uh, on conservation practice. And I, I really think it would potentially bring different perspectives mm -hmm. as well. And I think the only reason that that might not be obvious is because we are all relatively similar in the first place. And it can be difficult to see what you're not seeing. Um, mm -hmm. I think also, um, sorry, I've just completely forgotten what I was going right. to say. We <laughs> have two other questions from the so, room. Yes. That's a good opportunity. Um, we have one more question from the room, if anyone's got that one. You can fight it out. I know there's two. <laughs> Is there a vested interest in the cost or the lower cost of employing an apprentice as, as opposed to employing a, a, an employee, do you think? I mean, the, the apprenticeship minimum wage is £3.51 an hour. Mm. But <laughs> it's an ice cream. <laughs> very few people actually pay that rate. So most large employers have to commit to paying minimum wage or the minimum wage here right. anyway. So apprentices would still fall in that same category. <laughs> I think also with apprenticeships, obviously, if you're to have high quality apprenticeships, then the employer is going to be putting more than just money in. They're going to be investing their time in training the apprentice and giving them a high quality education as well. Otherwise, there's no point in it as well. And I think this is possibly going to become part of a wider debate about who has the responsibility for training conservators? Is it up to individuals to go off to university and pay £9,000 a year to get themselves trained so that they can then sell themselves as conservators? Mm. Or should employers be taking on more of this cost and creating more apprenticeships and paid internships and um, taking some of that financial burden themselves, taking it away from the individuals? Mm -hmm. And whether there's like an end point, if you do an apprenticeship, are you going to have a job with the company afterwards, mm -hmm. or is it just a means to move on, mm -hmm. give you that experience to then roll with your career in another company, another yeah. way? But so it's... As soon as you've done that, you're way far more desirable to an employer. Mm -hmm. So you carry on with the job, you're more likely to hold space in a job than somebody who hasn't had that experience. Yeah, yeah. experience might... seems to be key. That's what I keep mm -hmm. getting. <laughs> thrown at me so yeah but you might have seen experience. the the phrase career black hole um popping up i'm not sure where we are with the screen size um are people with apprenticeships going to be employed to the same level and is this does this go back to um, what neris was saying earlier about an, a whole profession change that we are responsible for making but then so maybe it is actually up to us so maybe we are the change mm -hmm. like so when we get to recruit. We recruit people who came in as apprentices. Mm -hmm. We make the choice to yeah. recruit someone who's disabled and might just need that little bit of flexibility in mm -hmm. the workplace. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is us. Mm -hmm. Maybe when we get, get that position of power, 
we make the changes. Yeah. Maybe. And there's a hand raised. <laughs> it, it was just a similar point about the concept of uh, friendship and a little bit of the degree. So, I mean, this being a long period. So, people will come out with four or five years of students crossing the same name. So, it's not a point of academic versus apprentice. Mm-hmm. You know, so as an opportunity to get diversity, it's a very strong model. Mm-hmm. In fact, so we had a debate earlier this year with lots of conservation projects and talk about the standards. And it could kind of could in ways that it ticks lots of boxes and has lots of potential. With a big caveat that it's not actually relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would probably like to just uh, bring us back to two final questions that we were asked. Uh, just so we can wrap up and everyone can have some wine. <laughs> uh, uh, one question sent by Ali was, uh, what people of colour voices can we lift up and how can we make, help, sh- help people of colour flourish in a predominantly white field? Um, which is kind of a huge, huge thing. And it doesn't just extend to people of colour, of course, it extends to all uh, diversity groups. Um, and and that's, that's one that I think we need icon to help us with and just celebrate those stories um, and just make sure that people know that they are welcome into this profession from all walks of life. Yeah, I, I would um, second that. Um, <laughs> um, basically from, uh, be it from uh, the LGBTQ, from uh, disabilities, from race, from class, you need, uh, basically we all need to be jumping into these communities and talking directly with them, not at them. We don't want to listen. We don't want to, to have, uh, oh yeah, we've got this one person, whatever. You have to invest in the communities to get them to come to you. Um, and so that's, you know, they have to be able to see themselves represented or they have to be able to see the dream or, you know, the, the uh, you know, when you're thinking, oh yes, I'd like to be a fireman when you're six years old. They need to be able to do that in conservation mm-hmm. and they can't do that if they're not seeing themselves represented. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I hope that. I feel like that's the best summing up <laughs> that we could have. a nice one to end on, actually. Uh, in which case, uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you for your questions, your comments. Please continue to tweet, to talk to us. Uh, talk as a sector, talk in your lunchrooms, talk everywhere about this. Let's get this sorted, people. And if you have anything particularly interesting to talk about that you'd like to talk about on our podcast, <laughs> then yeah, get in touch because like we're always keen to have new victims. I mean, interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much. Okay. Wait, we have to on I really just, I'm, I have a long list of things I wanted to say to you tonight. We don't have time because I really want you to be able to meet all these fabulous people and then we meet you. But what I would like to say is thank you for your honesty. It's incredibly powerful. Thank you all. Thank you for calling ICON on this and asking us to take this seriously 
and for us to get out there and, you know, all of us do something, as he said, everybody get out there and talk about conservation with people that matter and talk about conservation with the people that matter. That's all I want to say, except that I want to give a huge thank you to Jenny Mathiason, Chloe Ramsey, Christina Rose, um, Rebecca Plum, and Neris Rudder. Thank you so much. And Fox, the great Fox. <laughs> And we should say as well, thank you very much, Alison, for uh, inviting this and encouraging this, um, and F Icon generally for having us. It's been really great. Thank you very much. And for everyone for listening. Now go drink wine. <laughs> Special thanks to Neris Rudder and Rebecca Plum for being part of the panel, to everyone at Icon for having us, to our sound engineer Fox for making it all possible, and of course, everyone who joined in the conversation via Twitter and Facebook on the day. If you'd like the conversation to continue, remember that you can tweet us at the Seawood Podcast, email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com, follow us on Facebook, or just visit the website at theseawood.show. This has been a Wooden Dice production.